Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 174. Imagine you're a scientist and imagine you really want to help children. You want to help children so much that for 20 years, you work all day, every day, in a windowless concrete room, collecting blood and stool and feces from mice. Now imagine you do this every single day, seven days a week, and 10 years in, you wake up, you get out of bed, you make some coffee, you get ready for work, and you think to yourself on the commute, I may never see this through before I die, but today I will get one step closer to defeating this virus. And then you arrive and you park and you put on your lab coat and you do it all over again. And you do it the next day, and the next day, and the next. Dr. Paul Offit did that for 20 years. He spent his days in what they call the mouse house. It's this windowless concrete room at the animal facility at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia. It was there he spent his days, 7,300 of them, listening to classical music, inoculating mice, and collecting their bodily fluids. Year after year, day after day, even on the weekends. It, it, I never, ever thought of the, the scientific endeavor as in any sense a sacrifice. I loved it. I mean, although it doesn't sound fun probably to most people to go into a windowless concrete block room and, and inoculate mice and collect their breast milk feces and, and blood. Um, I loved it because you always had these, these questions you were trying to answer. Here's this thousand piece puzzle and you're putting in one piece at a time. And so I loved it. I mean, it, it's, and that's why it was seven days a week. I couldn't wait to get to the lab. Offit hoped by collecting all this evidence, he and his team would one day be able to defeat the rotavirus. Why work so hard to do that? Because when they started, while he was doing that work, each year, that particular virus infected 4 million children in the United States. And the rotavirus is pretty nasty. 70,000 of those kids each year experienced vomiting and diarrhea so severe and awful that they were hospitalized because the dehydration threatened to kill them. And it did sometimes. 
every year, about 60 children died. And there must have been days when Dr. Offit was dutifully collecting his evidence in that windowless concrete mouse house in his lab coat. And at the same time, another doctor in another lab coat was walking up to a family and beginning their explanation with, I'm sorry, we did all we could do. And that's true for so much of medicine. Doctors in a lab working on providing tools for doctors in a hospital, each aware of the other's struggle to combat an illness, killing people. An illness they know can be defeated, given enough time and effort and scientific research using the scientific method. Well, today we have a vaccine because all that work paid off. So Dr. Offit doesn't have to go to that mouse house every day, not anymore. But because he did, around the world, a child's life is saved by that vaccine. Every day. Year after year. Even on weekends. Dr. Paul Offit. He's our guest in this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast because he's written a new book titled Bad Advice. And it's all about what happened to him after he helped create that rotavirus vaccine and went on to be a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases. He did that work for years and then became a professor of pediatrics. And he worked for the CDC and he advised the government at many levels, many different times. And he basically became that scientist slash doctor who in the disaster movie about the killer virus is the person they fly to the White House. And so when the anti-vaxxer movement began, and it began urging parents to stop vaccinating their children out of unfounded fears that vaccines were dangerous, he became the expert that news programs invited to speak on behalf of doctors and scientists around the world telling people no, we've done the research. We are the people who go spend 20 years in the mouse house. We know vaccines are safe. We've spent a giant portion of our lives studying this, and we will continue to study it. In fact, we will take these claims that you're making, and we will study them specifically. And they did. And they found, hey, look, vaccines, as we have been saying, they absolutely definitely do not cause these issues you think they cause. It's understandable. You would think that. You're emotionally invested in who wouldn't be. And you're right. The stakes are really high here. So we should base our opinions and our behaviors and our medicine on evidence. And the evidence says, well, this is what he told everybody. Dr. Offit entered the fray almost as soon as it began, speaking out on behalf of vaccine safety in the United States. You have now studies looking at hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children who did or did not get the MMR vaccine, and the results were clear. MMR didn't cause autism. All right, I'll bite. Why should I vaccinate my kids? Because vaccines have saved our lives. I mean, before but they vaccines, seem perfectly healthy right now. Yeah, and, that, and, the, and the problem is, is that when we choose not to vaccinate, and that's happening, you're starting yeah. to see outbreaks of whooping cough and measles and meningitis. Not my I kids, mean, though. But it could be your kids. So but why take? I feel why like a chump because I had my kids immunized against rubella. Guess what? They never got rubella. It was a waste of money. Yeah. See, and that's the thing about vaccines, right? When they work, absolutely nothing happens. But that's right. a good thing, well, it's right? It's hard to argue with parents who are so convinced that their child took a dramatic turn after receiving the vaccine, and they are absolutely convinced, no matter what the Lancet says now, that a vaccine caused their child's autism. What do you say to them? 
Yeah, I, I think I can certainly understand where they're coming from. Their child was fine, they got a vaccine, and then they weren't fine anymore. Could the vaccine have caused it? That, that's a question that fortunately can be addressed in a scientific venue. Mm. You know, you look at hundreds of thousands of children that did or didn't receive MMR vaccine to see whether the instance of autism was greater in the vaccinated group, and it wasn't. Let's begin. What is the key message that you're trying to get out there? Well, I, I think that the notion that... that uh, that vaccines cause autism has been a harmful one. Harmful because I think it's unnecessarily scared parents about vaccines. Harmful because I think it's subjected Infectious children to, to therapy. Infectious expert Dr. Paul Offit explains. The number of people who are choosing not to vaccinate their children is increasing. We've gone over the tipping, tipping point. point. And it worries me. The, the tipping point is evidenced by outbreaks the likes of which we haven't seen recently. So, for example, we have a, a whooping cough outbreak in California that's bigger than anything we've seen since 1947. We've had mumps epidemics in the Midwest in 2006. McCarthy's influence is a real puzzle for scientists like Dr. Paul Offit, a pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and a world-renowned expert on vaccines. You'd like to believe that, that when people are trying to figure out, in this case, whether vaccines cause autism or what causes autism, they would turn to autism experts, uh, not to celebrities, to figure that out. Offa began to mention this quite a bit, imploring people to listen to doctors, to consensus among scientists, and not to celebrities, because while he was appearing on The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, CNN, ABC, NBC, BBC, 60 Minutes, and so on, at the same time, well, celebrities are doing this. Tonight, exclusive Jim Carrey and Jenny McCarthy, partners in life and partners in the search for answers to autism. Back in 1989, this shot schedule was 10 shots given. 10 shots given. When I was a kid, what did we get? Three? It's twice as many as anywhere else in, uh, in 30 countries in the Western world. But uh, We uh, give twice as many shots as any of those countries. Why is that? If it's vaccination and you're not against vaccination. Right. Well, what, what are you against? Don't vaccinate for this, but vaccinate for that? Yes. I think we have to choose which well, ones are absolutely necessary. How do I know which necessary? one? You should, well, you should educate yourself. We want to empower parents to educate themselves. Do we need to have the chicken pox? Do we need the hepatitis B shot on the second day of life? I don't think we can afford to assume that the people who are charged with our, our public health any longer have our best interests at heart all the time. You know, there's really scary statistics out there, and to each their own. Um, I've read too many books, and I, you know, autism wasn't prevalent like it is now years ago. So something's going on, whether it's the chemicals in our food or the vaccines, because there's more mercury and all other sorts of things in them. Something's happening, and we can't really ignore that. I choose to believe that I think it's in the vaccines. Um, but again, to each their own, and that's when where it was I announced that this film called Vaxxed would be screened at the festival. Later, the festival pulled it. Was it because of the backlash? Were you surprised that people reacted the way that they did? I was shooting a movie. I was in the middle of a lot of stuff. I think the movie is something to, that people should see. There was a backlash which I haven't fully explored, and I will. But And I didn't want it to start affecting the, the festival in ways that I couldn't see. But definitely there's something to that movie. And there's another movie called Trace Amounts. He is a lifelong champion of the environment who appears in the documentary Trace Amounts, available now online, and is the editor of Thimerosal, Let the Science Speak, a book on the same issue. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is back with us. Robert. You have to look at the biggest vector of mercury in American children now is coming from vaccines, and we need you to look at the science. When I started looking at it, uh, what I saw was very alarming, which we were giving 
huge amounts of mercury to our children. A lot of it has been taken out of vaccines, but there's still an extraordinary right. amount still in the vaccines, and particularly the but, flu vaccine. Now, to be clear, neither I nor Paul Offit think that anti-vaxxers are stupid or that their emotions aren't understandable. Many people in that community are suffering and they want answers to why their children have been diagnosed with autism. Others are just concerned about their family members and loved ones or their parents who want the best for their new families. But in the media, on television especially, Paul Offit, vaccine expert, has been telling people for years what science and medicine has to say about vaccines and how to navigate the complexities of vaccination. While non-expert celebrities have been given equal time to counter-argue the things he says. And in his estimation, that causes harm. The subtitle of his new book, Bad Advice, is Or Why Celebrities, Politicians, and Activists Aren't Your Best Source for Health Information. And in the book, he goes through the lessons he's learned over time about how to and how not to talk about complex scientific issues when invited to speak on a news program. Because over the years, he admits he has made a lot of mistakes. For instance, he once debunked the assumption that kids get too many vaccinations too soon by explaining that the research is clear that a child could handle as many as 10,000 vaccinations at once, which he said was actually a conservative estimate. That's how easy it is for the body to deal with and make use of them. But, I mean, come on. The reaction online in anti-vaxxer communities was not good. People who had heard celebrities like Jim Carrey and Jenny McCarthy asking why children used to get one vaccine, but now they get 13 and they get more than 30 doses before they're five years old, well... They hear a doctor saying you could safely get 10,000 and, well, to get an idea of the reaction, here's former Indiana Representative Dan Burton hearing that for the first time. A child can take 10,000 vaccines and have no problem. I don't know who this guy is, this doctor often, but uh, he's one of, the, one of the problems that we face uh, in this country as far as health is concerned. That kind of statement coming from somebody who seems to have expertise really confuses people. And when you're talking to people at home and uh, they say, well, I don't know whether to get my child vaccinated or not. And they say, well, Dr. Offit said this and he's an authority. I mean, look at this. He is in effect complicit in exposing that child to a potential lifelong malady. That's wrong. That's wrong. Now, he should be held accountable for that or he should shut his mouth. And if I sound like I'm too, too uh, aggressive in saying this, I would say it to his face. To say that, you know, mercury is not something we really need to worry about and the children getting 10,000 vaccinations wouldn't make any difference. My grandson got nine in one day, seven of which had thimerosal in them, and he was, he was uh, immediately autistic. Two, three days later, four days later. Now, come on, don't tell me it didn't have anything to do with it. Dr. 
Dr. Paul Offit. Why did you write this book? Um, I, I wanted, I guess, people to learn from what my struggles have been in this. I mean, I guess I was naive enough to believe that if you simply um, give people good information in a, what you think at least is a compelling and accurate and compassionate and passionate way, that you can be persuasive. But there's there's a lot of um, obstacles in the way. I, you know, the, the, the I guess the, the, the line between the, the, the opaque window between scientific facts and the public understanding those scientific facts is the media, whether it's it's social media or whether it's, you know, sort of print media or television media, whatever. That opaque window was something I just needed to learn about. And, and I think I've learned a few things about it. And I, the purpose of the book was to try and get people to understand that opaque window. Well, in the press materials, you, you, it's you say, and this may be a publicist's word. So, if it is, if they, these aren't, if these aren't your thoughts, just say so. But you, it says that not since Galileo argued that the sun was the center of the universe, which contradicted Holy Scripture, and you know got the Inquisition interested in what he was up to. Uh, not since then has scientific truth been in such jeopardy. Is that something you believe? Yes, I think we've we've sort of moved from scientific literacy into scientific denialism. I think people simply declare their own truths. Vaccines cause autism, um, creationism and evolution are equally valid hypotheses, climate change is a hoax, and they repeat it again and again and again. I mean, it's, it's frightening, actually, how far we've gone. And obviously, the current administration here in the United States does little to make that better. In this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, we sit down with Dr. Paul Offit to discuss his new book, Bad Advice, and to explore this opaque window that he has been speaking through for so many years. Offit is famous for saying, science doesn't speak for itself, which means that somebody has to speak for it. That could be a scientist, that could be a politician, that could be a celebrity, it could be you and me, non-experts most of the time. And the problem, he says in the book, is that science is messy and confounding and difficult and takes 20 years sometimes in a mouse house to understand one tiny little thing. So when it comes to public communication, scientists are really sometimes not that great when it comes to packaging their insights into narratives that work in the media. And we'll get his advice on what to do about that after the break.
These two people, the name Rich and Vicky, they co-founded a company called Brooklyn. And why did they do that? Because they went on a trip, they stayed at a place, it had nice sheets, and they thought, why don't we have nice sheets like this? And they realized that comfortable sheets shouldn't cost an arm and a leg. They should be easy to find. And what they decided to do was start a company. They started a company to deliver simple, beautiful home essentials at a fair price by cutting out the middleman, and they named it Brooklyn. And why? Because they're Brooklyn people, and it sounds fun and cool, and they sell sheets and all sorts of other stuff. They have blankets and comforters and pillows and things like that. But here's the thing. We spend one-third of our lives in, around, under, on top of, folding, washing, being with, communing with sheets. Our loved ones, our children, our hopes and dreams, they happen around sheets. And really, seriously, shouldn't you just have really good sheets? Shouldn't you have the best sheets that you could have? I mean, why would you not want to be super comfortable and have a really great product for something you're spending a third of your life hanging out with? These are the internet's favorite sheets. Brooklinen has more than 50,000 five-star reviews. More than 50,000 people have taken time out of their day to tell you that they love their sheets. And not only do they love them, they give them the maximum star rating. And they've moved beyond the bedroom now to offer things like loungewear. So you will feel like you never even left the bed. For me, having these fantastic sheets is sort of a tiramisu moment. And I call it that because I remember the first time I ever tried tiramisu. I'd never had it before. I'd never heard of it. I'd never seen it. I grew up in a very rural area where tiramisu did not exist. And when I had it for the first time at a conference, I told everybody at the table, mm, what, what is this? Mm, this is the best stuff I've ever had. What? Whom, what, what uh, and somebody at the table was like, yeah, it's, uh, it's tiramisu. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, tiramisu. And I had to go look it up on my phone. And I realized I now lived in a world where tiramisu existed, and I did not before. And there was a before and after in that moment. And I call those kinds of moments tiramisu moments. Now I can call them Brooklyn and moments too, because after you get really good sheets, it feels like a before and after. You now live in a world where you can have that kind of experience in your bed. Do you like softness? Do you like comfort? Do you like the essentials that will help you relax? Brooklinen has these things. Brooklinen.com is the perfect place to hit refresh in the new year. So go on, make yourself comfortable. Go to brooklinen.com right now. Get 10% off of your first order and free shipping when you use the promo code Y-A-N-S-S. Y-A-N-S-S at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. And listen, New Yorkers, if you're listening, you can get the internet's favorite sheets and more at Brooklinen's first store in Brooklyn at 127 Kent Avenue in Williamsburg. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. You may have heard this expression before. Knowledge is power. And thanks to the Great Courses Plus, you can tap into that power with a click of your mouse, a tap of your phone, because this is a streaming service where you can unlock unlimited access to objective, reliable, and fascinating information on virtually any topic. It's learning from the brightest minds around the world, benefiting, you will benefit from their years of experience and unique insights. And you can use that to help formulate your own knowledge and perspectives so that you can transform from a student into a master with more than 40,000 five-star reviews, 40,000 five-star reviews on The Great Courses Plus, you are guaranteed to find compelling content. I'm listening to one right now that I think you would really like. 
It's called Math and Magic. It's taught by this renowned mathemagician named Professor Benjamin, who has been in TED Talks and the Colbert Report and other popular media, and has put together this course that teaches you the fundamentals of the magician's art, but also shows you how to use tools like playing cards, numbers, and geometric figures, and demonstrates through those tools some really fundamental and fascinating aspects of how math works. You see the mathematics of card tricks, uh, how to look like a card shark, how to stack a deck, perfect shuffles, riffle shuffles, magic with numbers, look like a genius, the magic of the number nine, how to do things that make you seem like a psychic, geometrical and topological magic, magic squares. It's just sort of a course that you would never think of, I think, on your own. Math and magic and how they work together. It's the kind of thing that you can find at the Great Courses Plus that is fantastically curated content. You get 12 30-minute long lectures on the world of math and magic taught by a mathemagician who is also a professor named Arthur T. Benjamin with a PhD. I think it's really cool. This is something I want you to try out. Tap into this power of knowledge. Join me and thousands of other learners and sign up for The Great Courses Plus for unlimited power, but for a limited time only. My listeners will get unlimited access completely free for an entire month. <laughs> so don't wait. Sign up today. Use my special URL. You get a month free to listen to as much content as you want. And all you have to do is go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's it. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Click, 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 and you will tap into the power of knowledge thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart and now we return to our program my name is david mccraney and this is the you're not so smart podcast in this episode we're talking to dr paul offit about his new book bad advice or why celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best source of health information, which is one part book about how to be a better consumer of science and medical news, and one part instruction manual for doctors and scientists who could, and in his opinion, should, be communicating that news in a media landscape that gives equal time to non-experts who might not be great at science, but who are great at communicating and spreading information sometimes misinformation and incorrect claims, and sometimes with good intentions. In the book, he talks about one of the biggest problems when it comes to explaining scientific issues is that scientists have been trained to never say they are 100% certain, not of anything. For instance, instead of saying that the earth is not flat, they must say something more like, the evidence gathered so far suggests that the earth is round-ish. Instead of saying cigarettes cause cancer, they have to say people who smoke cigarettes are much more likely to die of cancer-related illnesses. In science, you can't say you've proved anything. I mean, that would be against the whole way we figure out things using null hypotheses and such. You can only say that the evidence collected so far supports some hypotheses more than others. So if you could talk about that for just a second, what that that particular difficulty that you've had to deal with and and what you think is a, maybe a better way of, of answering that kind of question. No, that's that's a central point. That's critical. I, I, when, when you form a hypothesis in science, it's 
the null hypothesis, as you alluded to earlier. So if you use the MMR uh, autism issue as an example, the null hypothesis is MMR vaccine does not cause autism. You can do two things scientifically with that null hypothesis. You can reject it, which is to say that when autism follows receipt of the MMR vaccine, it occurs at a level that was greater than would be expected by chance alone. Or you cannot reject it, which is to say when autism follows receipt of the MMR vaccine, it would be, occur at a level that would be expected by chance alone. But you can't accept the null hypothesis. Or said another way, you can never prove never. You can't. I mean, the examples I use is when I was a little boy, I used to um, watch the television show Superman, the one with George Reeves, and I used to go into the back lawn and, you know, sort of tie a towel around myself and put my hands in front of me and, and try and fly like Superman flew, unsuccessfully. I tried about five times. I know it's going to surprise your listening audience to find out I never <laughs> could fly like Superman. And I tried a few times. I could have tried a million times. That would have proven I couldn't fly, it would only made it all the more statistically unlikely. I mean, you can't prove that there weren't weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You're, you're there. You can only say they're nowhere that you looked. You can't say that I've never been to Juneau, Alaska, even though I've never been to Juneau, Alaska. You can only show a series of pictures of buildings in Juneau, Alaska with me not standing next to them. So so scientists know that. They, they And in fact, you're a good scientist. When you write a scientific paper, if your discussion section is full of caveats, which is to say, you you never go beyond the data that you that you have. Never, you you don't don't extrapolate beyond those data. And so you're a good scientist if you say, you know, I said this based on this, but it's possible that you know if this was constructed this way, one could have found something else. That's considered to be a good scientist. That's terrible training for trying to explain what you're doing to the media because it it does. It sounds like. You're waffling. I, I remember at, uh, when Dan Burton, who was a Republican from Indiana, uh, held a, frankly, show trial at, at, at when he was head of the Office of Government Reform back in the early 2000s. He believed that his grandson, Christian, had um, autism uh, following receipt of vaccines, which is what his daughter believed. And so, and so there was Andrew Wakefield. On, on the other side, as well as some sort of fringe scientists who were willing to also support this point of view. But on our on the side of science was this wonderful epidemiologist from CDC whose name was Colleen Boyle. And she got up there and she was great. She, she explained what the studies allowed her to say, but she never said MMR doesn't cause autism because she knows she couldn't say it. She said just what you said earlier. All the evidence to date does, is not consistent with the hypothesis that uh, MMR is associated with autism, something like that. And Dan Burton got angry. I mean, if you read the transcript of that meeting, you would not realize how angry he got. He screamed at her. He said, so... You can't tell me MMR doesn't cause autism because you just don't know, do you? You've got an out in the back of this thing. To him, she was either waffling or worse, covering something up. So you have to be careful how you sound to the public as compared to if you're talking to another scientist, because the other scientists will understand why you're saying what you're saying, but the public just sees you as, as, as frankly, not supporting your point. I mean, so, so therefore, said another way, scientists are the opposite of, or your training as a scientist is the opposite of what you, you would need as training to be an advocate for a particular position. The very idea of a null hypothesis is something that you might have to take a, take, take a couple steps back and explain. When you're in a conversation like that, um, or you're especially if you're on camera, and you realize, oh, okay, this person doesn't even understand this thing, so this is going to be a difficult thing for me to explain. What, is, what are your tips and tricks for dealing with that since you've had to do it for so many years? I just try and simplify it. I mean, so 
if we use the MMR autism as an example, I, I would say that I think that it's perfectly understandable how a parent could ask the question, right? My child was fine. They got the vaccine. Now they're not fine. Could the vaccine have done it? That's an answerable question. You can actually look at large numbers of children who did or didn't get that vaccine to see whether or not, in fact, those that got the vaccine had an increased risk of autism. And what we can say now after study, after study, after study, is that th this vaccine doesn't cause autism. So I do think you have to be willing to say at some level what you know that, that at least the scientific construct doesn't allow you to say. But I think fairly, one can say at this point, 17 studies into the look at whether MMR causes autism, they clearly show that it, it's not associated, that I think you can say in this case, a truth has emerged. Public opinion requires that scientists and doctors really illustrate and educate people on how science works, how it doesn't work, what the scientific method is, what it isn't, and how hard all this is, and how hard they're working on it, and how many people are working on it. It's, I just think it, I agree with you that scientists have got to get into the game in some way or another. And this book is about how to do how to do so based off your experience out there in the wild. What is your what is some advice that you can give communicators about how to be a good interview guest, how to stand before a, a maybe a politician or how to deal with um, maybe um, public debate, so things like that. What are some sort of, what are some nuggets of advice? So, so it's tricky. I think, I think the best people to communicate science are scientists because they do know the science. They know it inside and out, which works for them and against them. It work, works against them and it's very easy for them to slip into jargon as a, a shorthand for communicating. So you're constantly translating in your mind the phrases that you would normally use if you were talking to another scientist to someone who's, who's, who's just a member of the, you know, the general public. Number one. Number two is, is you know, we, we love to um, do everything we can to reduce uncertainty by explaining things as in-depth as possible. Forget that. What you have to do is just have a few simple points that you want to make and make them as simply as possible. Um, and, and, and that's uh, that is something that's learned by doing it. Uh, uh, you can have all the media training you want. I think that, that until you're sort of on the front lines and you see the way it works in front of Congress or you see the way it works when you're on television um, or the radio or magazines or whatever, podcasts, you uh, you just learn it learn from it by doing it, I, I think. And it's and therefore, <laughs> there will always be painful lessons in the process, but you do learn those lessons. Um. What do you do in the case of when what it is you're trying to communicate is going to threaten or people are going to perceive that it's going to threaten their uh, their religion or something they find sacred in some way? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I wrote a book called Bad Faith, When Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine. The, the impetus for that book was a, a measles outbreak that occurred here in Philadelphia in, um, in 1991 over a few-month period. Um, think about what's happening now in Washington State. They declared a state of emergency with 55 cases, okay? In, in this city, in 1991, we had 1,400 cases of measles and nine deaths from measles, okay? And, and, and that, it, it, you know... People were scared to come into the city. Schools canceled trips to the cities. People were afraid to come in from the suburbs. We vaccinated kids down to six months of age. We got help from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, hundreds of thousands of dollars to try and create educational pamphlets. It was a nightmare. And the reason it, was, it happened was it centered on two fundamentalist churches that didn't believe in vaccines, not the vaccines are a belief system, they're an evidence-based system, and they didn't believe in medical care. So those children suffered. And, and that, that really upset me. Uh, upset me so much so that I actually read the New Testament because when these, these parents ultimately were by law 
forced to come into the hospital, I would ask them, how could you stand back and watch your child suffer like this? And they said, Jesus was my doctor. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a fair chance. I'm going to read this, the, the New Testament. And, and I came away with exactly the opposite feeling. I mean, Jesus, I mean, it, this is, I probably should never talk about religion in, in general, but, you know, I think independent of whether you believe in the existence of a supreme being or independent of whether you believe Jesus was the son of God or independent of whether you believe that the things that Jesus is said to have done all, were all said and done by him, I think Mark was written about 30 years after his death, that, like sort of raising Lazarus from the dead, I think is a, is a hard one to, to buy into. But, you know, it's he was in many ways a breakthrough character, a figure. Jesus of Nazareth saying things like, suffer me the children for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, or verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. This guy stood up for children at a time when child abuse was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Hippocrates never mentioned children. Children didn't matter. They mattered to him. And so it, it seemed to me the opposite was true, that what they're calling religion, or what they're saying, Jesus was my doctor, that's the opposite of what that book taught. And, and it, I'm not a religious person. And so, I went, you know, we went to Anthony Bevilacqua, who had just been elevated from bishop to cardinal. He was a major voice in this, this city. And we said, say something. Say this isn't us. Say these are not Christian acts. And he wouldn't do it. And it just, it just in, in this whole thing, when people say that it, it's their religious belief to what? to put your child in harm's way unnecessarily. Every religion teaches you not to do that, teaches you to care about your child and care about your family and care about your community. It's a profoundly unreligious thing to do. The problem is in this country, when you say this is my religion or this is how I express my faith, everybody stands back, but they shouldn't stand back here. It shouldn't be your right to martyr your child to your religion. And to your and, and to your original like to the point of your whole book, the, the, it's in the subhead. Uh, celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best source of health information. What do we do about this? What do you like? What's your advice to people? Let's say they're they're invited, which you have been many times, to sit across from a celebrity. Uh, what should you do? I, I think, and, and I know Richard Dawkins thinks the opposite's true, and he's, he's probably right. That, that when you do that, you give them a platform, you give them, you give them oxygen, you legitimize them in some ways. I do think if that show's going to happen anyway, it's good to have somebody on the side of science there. Realize, I think you have to realize that you're not going to obviously convince the person who who you're. Uh, arguing with, and you're arguably not going to convince the host, you may not even convince the studio audience, but if you if you put the facts out there, these these things, these snippets invariably end up on YouTube, and people do watch this and are educated by it. I think you have to look beyond the people that you're talking to and, and, and do that, but this is just my opinion. I know Richard Dawkins feels differently about this, and he's much smarter than I am, so he's probably right, but I, I do think there's something to be said for, for doing this. You make a great case about how we're more compelled by fear than reason. If you could explain what you mean by that and then what we ought to do about it. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that every week since we crawled out of ocean onto land, our amygdala and hippocampus, sort of our seats of emotion, were far better developed than our cerebrum, which kind of came late to the game. The, our ability to um, be logical and reason is a little less uh, firm in our brains than I think our emotion. And, and you can see this. If you watch the way that, uh, that, that congressmen or, or, uh, or presidents run for office, they appeal often to your, your fears than to your reason. Um, that's the way. That's the way. Often uh, products are sold. So that's just true, um, and and it's true here too. Uh, I think, but I think you have to be really careful. You can't oversell 
you know, the fear. And, and, and that's the tricky part. I, I mean, I think Jay Inslee, as governor of Washington, when he declared a state of emergency, that was surprising to me, actually. I, I think 55 cases, I was surprised that he would consider that a state of emergency. But, um, but he did. And you always worry that you're going to make people that, that people are not going to trust you if you if you you know scream you know wolf too many times so i think you have to be careful but yeah i think that's what you're dealing with you you know your 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 science is is by definition really a, a a study of controls it's a it's a it's an exercise in critical thinking it's an exercise in hierarchical thinking it's not an appeal to fear and so but and so for the scientists to then try and and, and compel people and at some part you do have to use fear as part of that um it's it's not uh, something we're very good at yeah, because you say in the book we fear vaccines and radon and gluten and GMOs and BPA and fluoride and all sorts of stuff. Um, yet, you know, we don't fear the diseases uh, that these vaccines address or climate change or uh, what happens when you take uh, unregulated megavitamins and supplements. It's 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 odd where the fear is placed, and it's then it becomes difficult for the science communicator to say, well, you should fear this, not that, or this is how you should address your fear. I imagine it's very difficult because this is, you know, when people are driven by their emotions and they're putting um, the the their reasoned, rational way of 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 weighing the evidence aside because they don't want to get hurt in the short term, it's got to be extremely difficult to persuade someone, especially if you're only given like a minute and 30 seconds on, you know, TV. You know, I watch my wife, who's a general practitioner, a pediatrician, try and persuade people who choose not to vaccinate their children. And she makes an appeal to emotion. She says, look, let me love your child, please. You know, this is my way of loving your child is keeping them safe. And don't ask me to send this child out into a world that's progressively more dangerous, more measles, more mumps. You know, pneumococcus is still out there. Chickenpox is still out there. Don't put me in that position. I can't do it. I can't. And, and so with that, with an emotional plea, you know, that's backed up by the science, i.e., these are the diseases that are out there, um, she's much more persuasive. But you have to be willing to do that, and it's um, emotionally draining. But I, I think it's 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 part of the persuasion business. You say that if you want to dismiss a notion as preposterous, nothing is more effective than making a joke. Uh, take us through what you mean by that. Well, I mean, I think look at John Oliver, who's perfect. I mean, he he you know he makes fun of this notion of. Um, climate change being controversial by having, you know, 97 scientists walk onto his stage and then two or three who, who don't agree and then they just both talking. So it just, it, it shows you graphically and in a humorous way how this is really not an issue of debate. And, and it's like the George Bernard Shaw line, you know, if you're going to tell people they're wrong, make them laugh, otherwise they'll kill you. <laughs> and I, I think that's true here. You, you have to, you have to be, it also the humor gives you a certain distance, I think, um, but in, 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 in all this, but, but I think that when something's being made fun of as silly, then it, it's much more hard. It's much harder to embrace. Um, it, it, it seems to me. So, and I think that's happened I, over the last 15 years, the anti-vaccine movement has, has lost its footing with the mainstream media. They see them as, as a problem. I mean, you know, the, the anti-vaccine people are out there sort of protesting against the uh, the tightening of uh, of the vaccine exemptions in Washington State right now. They're basically Washington State is considering a bill where you can't have a child go to school un unless they're vaccinated. Um, so they're protesting against that. They see that as their enemy. They see this 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 taking away of their rights as their enemy. But that's not their enemy. Their enemy is the outbreaks. 
and 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 there's only one way that you're going to be able to stop the outbreaks. The outbreaks is what's turned the public against them. Yeah, you um, you say in the book that the, the you quote a stand-up comic who's talking about the Time Life um, commercials. If anyone remembers those, you can find them on YouTube. They were mysteries of the unknown. And uh, one of them is the person says um, the, the the voiceover is like a a woman burns her hand in Nebraska at the same time her daughter six states away feels a pain in her hand coincidence and the stand up community is like yeah that's what a coincidence is <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you you talk about uh, you you were on Samantha Bee's show you were on Colbert um, you talk about the work of Oliver and Kimmel and Penn and Teller. It reminded me of this old Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde quote. He said, as, well, as long as war is regarded as wicked, it'll always have its fascination. When it's looked upon as vulgar, it'll cease to be popular. Um, I, I remember, I think it might have been Steven Pinker who said that that's what happened when it came to um, dueling. Uh, dueling became, was very popular and didn't, as much as people tried to convince people with reasoned arguments that they should really stop dueling so much and killing each other over slights, it didn't go away until it became silly and stupid and people started making fun of it and newspapers would have cartoons that made people who dueled look like they were um, morons and that they were, they were, uh, they were, they were ridiculous. They were worthy of our ridicule. Um, and you talk about in the book that the Wakefield thing, oddly enough at this point, um, it's almost like uh, it's, it's run its course in that um, uh, I think enough time has gone by that people like yourself have put enough work into this and they haven't sat back that um, most people don't look at that or look at him or look at the work he's put out recently or these documentaries and they don't feel like it has the same gravitas as what a book like you just put out has. And I'm wondering, um, looking to the future, what do you think – um, what do you think about that? What do you think uh, is where, – where are we going? I mean, I mean, there's this fear that we're in a post-truth world. What do you think? Well, I think the truths always do win out. I mean, as, as much as Galileo was put uh, in shackles and, and taken away, as he said when he was being carried off, he said, referring to the earth, it still moves. You know, you can put me in jail. But it still moves, and I think that's true of science here. The, the, I mean, Andrew Wakefield still has his following. There are still people who who, who believe in him as much as one would believe in a religious figure, or a guru. Uh, but he's wrong, and and time has shown that he was wrong. And and eventually, most parents of children with autism know that he's wrong, and his 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 uh, pronouncements have caused outbreaks, which has now moved him into the area of not just someone who was wrong, but someone who's a pariah, and so. And that, that's, I think, the natural progression of things. You can deny climate change all you want, but the fact of the matter is the climate's changing because of human activity, and we are not, and we can't deny it, deny it any longer. A lot of the states have sort of picked this up and sort of just uh, acting against, in many ways, the administration. So I think, I think scientific truths do win out always. You just have to be patient. What do you think is driving so much of this, this like, current era's anti-science or, or uh, you know, the truthiness thing that's happening where people are not, um, it's not so much they're impervious to facts, it's that they are picking and choosing which facts to believe. And then when someone like yourself comes along and says, well, this is, this is what we understand as, and we as in the scientific community, and I'm speaking on behalf of the scientific community as you do so often, what is driving so much of this, do you think? I think it's different things. So for example, 
regarding the vaccines caused autism, cultural, but not scientific controversy. Uh, you know, from, from the parents' standpoint, my child was fine. They got a vaccine. Now they're not fine. I think that the vaccine did it. And, and that's actually a fair question to ask. Um, and most people um, who, who are parents of children with autism don't believe that vaccines cause it. The most recent study conducted by the Autism Science Foundation out of New York found that 85% of parents of children with autism don't believe that vaccines were the cause. Now, for the other 15% or, or people um, who are concerned about getting uh, have, having their child get vaccinated and then having autism be the result, to deny all those studies is sort of to move into the realm of conspiracy theory, that you believe that the pharmaceutical company is sort of uh, has the, the government in their pocket, it has the medical establishment in their pocket, and sure, that's what they're going to publish, or sure, that's what they're going to say, and so you, you just don't believe it because you're a conspiracy theorist, and so that's one thing. I think the other is, is if you take climate change for an example, I mean, why is that a political issue? I mean, why is why do the Republicans generally not believe the, the data on climate change, but the Democrats do? And I think at some level there's a financial incentive in that, right? It's much easier to say um, that that um, you know I think that that uh, well, the climate change is is a different story. I think there it becomes for whatever reason a political issue. You have the Republicans on one side believing that climate change is not real, the, the, the Democrats do. I think there it's, it's financial reasons. I mean, the Republicans want less regulation. If you want less government regulation, especially as regards the environment, it's a lot easier to say this whole climate change business is a hoax than to say, yes, it's real, but we don't care and we're just going to continue to uh, to burn fossil fuels or whatever. So I think I think that represents sort of two reasons for why it is that people reject science, one for convenience and the other um, because of you, you believe there are forces out, out there that mean to do you harm. You have that section about research, which I wanted to talk about, which is, um, it made me laugh. I actually uh, took a picture of it with my phone the, on the page so I wouldn't forget because it made me laugh about, because uh, I, 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 we all have, have experienced this. I've experienced this with my family plenty. Uh, people say, well, I look, you know, I did some research on this and um, it seems to me that, you know, this is how vaccines work or it seems to me that uh, we didn't land on the moon. I mean, I've done some research on it. I've looked up some stuff. Um, and, you know, you say in the book, well, well I'll, I'll lob this up to you. Like uh, when people say they've done their research, what, do you, what does that usually mean? It, you, so I'll give you an example. So when someone says, I've done my research on the chickenpox vaccine and I've decided not to get it, what that research means is that they've looked on the internet, read people's opinions about the vaccine, and have based their decision on those opinions, um, often from sites like Natural News or sites that give terrible information about, about vaccines. Um, if you really want to be an expert about, or if you really want to inform yourself about about the chickenpox vaccine, you should read the roughly 300 articles that have been published on the subject, which would mean that you would have to have an expertise in areas like vaccinology and virology and molecular biology and statistics and, and, and epidemiology. And most people don't have that expertise. Frankly, most doctors don't have that expertise. So what do they do? They rely on groups that at least collectively have that expertise, that at least collectively have read those articles, like the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices or the Committee of Infectious Diseases, which you know advises the American Academy of Pediatrics. Those groups have read those, those articles, and those groups then make a recommendation 
which has basically saved our lives. But it's just never a message that you can sell in the 21st century. Trust them, they're experts. It just doesn't work. People believe that they can develop their own expertise by Googling a word and then reading a few paragraphs that are written on, that are that they find on the internet. It's 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 painful. And you know, at some level we do that. I mean, we at, I think as met our, our I teach our medical students here periodically. Just last week I had a one-week course with them, so I got to spend a lot of time with them. But that's how they're trained. I mean, they're trained to be, and it's good, they're trained to be open-minded to all sort of attitudes and beliefs and cultural differences. That's great. But this is where the line gets drawn because there's nothing about about one's cultural belief or, or, or the way in which they were raised that should allow you to be open-minded to the fact that this person may have a, a, um, a terrible opinion about vaccines, which could then hurt their child. It's not okay. That That's not okay. And, and it's hard to be confrontational. I, I think all pediatricians, you know, are uncomfortable with, with confronting this in any sort of way. And so, um, and so it persists. And so one to 2% of kids aren't vaccinated at all. Um, about 10 to 20% a, a delay or withhold or separate or space out vaccines. And so you see an outbreak in, of, uh, of measles in Washington state. I think it's about 55 kids last I saw, all less than 10 years of age for the most part, all you know unvaccinated because their parents made that choice. It's a dangerous game we play. And I just feel like the only thing that's gonna turn this around when it's all said and done is that children are gonna have to die again from these diseases and maybe that'll get our attention. Mm. Each one of these has their own nuances and, and you know peculiarities. But is there something fundamental to all of this that that where a person like yourself would sit in front of someone and say, "Here are the facts on the matter. Here's how science does what it does," and then someone is resistant to that? Is there something fundamental to all of this sort of thinking where people want to to pick and choose what they believe about how the world works around them? I think, you know, Tom Nichols wrote a book, I think, called The Death of Expertise, and, and I think that's at the heart of it, is that that there are some people who believe that because they have a certain belief, that that belief is as valid as anyone else's, independent of whether that other person has experience or expertise in that field that, that um, would make them the better go-to person for, for where to get information. It's just this kind of postmodernist phenomenon of because I believe it to be true, that is as valid as what anybody else believes. It's, I think the, there's a phrase that's like the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? That you mm. you think that um, that your 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 knowledge is is, is so great that um, that anything you think or say is, is going to be true independent of the expertise that is on the other side. That's, that's, yeah, we had Dunning on the show and he, he walked us through it and, um, and you know, this is the bread and butter of what all of my stuff is about. And I still, even after all these years, um, it's, um, I wonder, you know, because like you are, one of the things I, I constantly wonder about is that there seems to be two things that are true. Like people tend to update their priors kind of the way, uh, paradigms shift in science where like you have a model of how you understand how things work and then slowly anomalies build up over time, and eventually you have to uh, come up with a new way of understanding things to account for all of the the counter evidence that you've been that you've received. And then people tend to sort of change slowly that way, and sometimes very quickly. But the but then a big difference is that people will sort of um, they'll face that moment of dissonance, and they'll often instead of choosing to switch to the new model, come up with a lot of ways to confirm the the model they're currently using and they will do a number of the things from um you know selective skepticism or 
uh, my slide bias. There's a million of them. There's a whole list of things that people tend to do to protect their current understanding of things. And um, I'm just wondering from the inside, you've 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 faced off against um, Jenny McCarthy and and um, JFK Jr. and and Andrew Wakefield and some. What has been your experience like in the moment with that? Do you are you? I guess I'm not really asking a question yet. So the question would be. Um, do you get frustrated and are you in the in the domain of people who are like look science scientists have learned to think a certain way and we are able to dismi- you know to give up old um ways of looking at things when new evidence suggests we should uh but to most people facts just don't work on people that's uh um, i was very um I got very frustrated when I was spoke with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson about this because he was like I just give people facts and I walk away I don't care about whether or not people change the way they see things if the facts aren't good enough for you then i can't help you and i'm, I'm trying to see what is it what does paul offit think about that do you th- when do you think a that facts don't work on people and b is should you just give people facts and walk away well i think facts alone don't work on people i think that when you construct uh, an argument you have to make it into a story i think we're humans and we're compelled by story i think that you can never leave the science but i think you have to frame that science in an emotional passionate and compassionate and compelling way. You have to find a way to do that. I mean, in, in my case, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, what Neil deGrasse Tyson's talking about. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, looks at, at the movie The Titanic and sees that when Rose is uh, is floating there in the water at the end and Jack, and they look up at that sky in the in the North Atlantic in 1912, that that's not how that sky would look at at that time. And so he calls James Cameron because he's upset that the sky was inaccurate. Um, you know, my I come into this in a different way. I mean, I see children come into this hospital every year who suffer and die from vaccine-preventable diseases. In the 2009 swine flu year, we had five children die of influenza. So, so watch that. I mean, you, you come away from that really scarred and very emotional. So when people tell me, um, I, you know, I've done my research, quote unquote, done my research, which means for them usually reading people's opinions about something on the internet. And then, then, uh, and I've decided not to get these vaccines. I always have those children in my mind. The one example, this is uh, occurred uh, not too long ago. It was a child whose parents had recently converted to Muslim. Uh, they had vaccinated their two older children, but not this younger child. Not that there's anything in the Muslim religion that says don't get vaccinated, but this was what they believed to be true. So they didn't vaccinate this child. And, and um, at 11 months of age, the child got a, uh, a type of bacterial meningitis that would have been prevented by the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. And, you know, he did badly. He, um, his brain pressed down, his brain stream, so-called herniated, and we, you know, we intubated him and saved his life, but he will never see or walk or speak or hear again. And, 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 and so there was, a, there was a normal child who could have lived 70 or 80 productive years, happy years, fulfilling years, whose life was snuffed out because of a terrible decision by their parents, the parents, based on terrible information. And, and it's that information that I always see as, as the dagger that I'm up against, as, as what's, what's hurting these children is that bad information. So it's very emotional for me. And it's probably why, you know, it's very hard for me to debate people on the on, on the, the, the other side of science, the non-scientists, because I just get too upset. You you write very uh, thoughtfully and um, and passionately about how this how you became who you are and why you're still fighting so hard. Um, 
And I'd like to give you a chance to just you know, talk about this at any length you wish. Um, the, the, the events that shaped your life, uh, you talk about uh, when you were five years old and, and how that uh, shaped what you wanted to do with your life. Uh, if you could talk about that for a minute. Sure. So I, um, I was born with a, a club feet, which is to say my feet turned down and inward. Um, at, at, the age five, at five years of age, the decision was made wrongly, frankly, in retrospect, to to uh, to operate on my right foot. Now, actually, uh, club foot surgery was repaired was was perfected in the mid 1990s. This was about 40 years before that. So, not surprisingly, the the surgery didn't go well. But but uh, I was in a chronic care facility in Cornance Children's Hospital, which is in Baltimore, Maryland, which is where I grew up, in a polio ward. So I. Um, this is in the days before iPads and therapy dogs. You know, you're just basically just lying in your bed um, with the nurse occasionally coming up to you and giving you a medication for, for weeks. I mean, I was in that facility for about six weeks. And, uh, you know, this was also because people were scared reasonably of polio. that You only had one. Your parents could only visit you one hour on Sundays from two to three. So I, my mother had, was, had a complication with her pregnancy with my brother, and so she never came. My father uh, came, but then was ultimately thrown out because he tried to sneak in one day. So I never saw my parents. And, and my, my bed actually was right next to the window where you could look down at the front door. So I just, I remember this like it was yesterday. I just stared out that window, looking at the front door, waiting for my parents to come, and it just didn't happen. Um, but also in that ward were uh, about 19 other children, most of whom had polio. Um, and I just remember them as, as often never having visitors and us sort of all being sort of vulnerable and helpless and alone. And that image kind of just, I, I'm sure it drove me at some level um, into medicine and, frankly, into uh, into infectious diseases. And when I was asked to be on the advisory committee for immunization practices at the uh, Centers for Disease Control, I asked, actually asked to be the head of the polio vaccine working group because I wanted to move us away from the oral polio vaccine, which was a rare but real cause of polio. The oral polio vaccine caused polio in roughly one per 2.4 million vaccinees. And that image, I think, I'm sure all of that drove me to this because I think our passions really come from our childhood, these are extreme passions, and I, I think that's been true for me too. Yeah, and also something happened with your spleen. What was that? Right. No, I fell from a height um, and landed on my abdomen and, and ruptured my spleen. And and that that's that 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 was an interesting story in that sense that um, back in I, I probably would own the school. I think if that happened today, but the 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 way would they they just put me on a bus and sent. I was unconscious for about 30 minutes, but there was no teacher out there. It says one of the kids, one of the kids finally decided to go in and get a teacher to bring her out to see me. And, you know, so I eventually came to, and they put me on a bus and sent me home. And, and, uh, that night, my, my uh, mother took me to, to the doctor who thought there wasn't anything wrong. And, and, and the next day I still had a lot of pain, um, in the area, um, where your spleen is. And, and so the doctor who, who my normal doctor who had been out of town actually came back in town at night, actually. He looked through the notes, saw that I'd, I'd been calling. He called my mother to ask how I was. She said, well, he really still is pain. So he actually drives to my house, right? The pediatrician drives to my house, examines me, says, I think he's mm. ruptured his spleen. My grandfather says, I, who, who came over at my father's request, said, I, I'd like to get a second opinion. My The, the guy, the pediatrician, Bill Markwood, said there's not time. He then drives me to the, to the uh, hospital where surgery is performed that 
night and they take about a quart and a half of blood out of my abdomen. Um, he saved my life. He literally saved my life. I mean, there's so many things that had to go right for him to save my life because I had gone to sleep that night um, with that ruptured spleen. I don't think I wake up the next morning. And he's just a remarkable guy. And he was always my image of a pediatrician and no doubt uh, made me want to go into pediatrics. Yeah. You talk about in the book that you get hate mail and harassment. You've been sued. You've been you've received death threats. You've been called a, a demon and um, and that you know evil. Um, how does that make you feel? How do you deal with it? And how have you not become a douchebag? <laughs> um, th- there was an event that happened to me um, once when I was uh, at, at speaking at uh, at Yale, and and I was asked to speak about vaccines and vaccine safety. And I talk, did talk about vaccines and autism. And when it was over, a, um, a woman came up to me um, and just screamed at me, screamed at me. I mean, she let me have it. It was it was withering. And, you know, I just stood there and took it. It always gets to me. I never have gotten so thin skinned that this doesn't bother me. And and when it was over, when she was done screaming, um, you know, I ended up leaving and, and going back to the train station. But the woman who gave me a ride back to the train station was a state senator who said to me something that, that was absolutely true. She said, you know you've gotten to the center of things when you meet the very best people and the very worst people. And, and mm. that's true. I have met the very worst people. I agree with that. They certainly have, know my email address. Um, but <laughs> I have also gotten to meet really cool people. I mean, you know, people like like Deborah Wexler at the Immunization Action Coalition or Kirsten Thistle and Erica DeWald and Amy Pisani and, and Trish Parnell and, and, you know, people who really have uh, Peter Hotez and, and others who really devoted their lives to to trying to to help educate the public and take care of children they're all advocates for children and it's just been such a, a an honor and treat to be able to work with them I, I would have never been able to do that had i not gotten in the game and just sort of stayed in the lab so i i think i i see myself as enormously lucky and fortunate frankly You can follow Dr. Paul Offit on Twitter at Dr. Paul Offit, O-F-F-I-T. His website is paul-offit.com. His new book is Bad Advice. And if you want advice about vaccines or you'd like him to come talk to you about stuff, you can find him at the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia because he is the director of that education center. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode at youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find previous episodes there, and you can find transcripts there, and you can find previous episodes at Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever else they put these podcasts these days. You can find me at NotSmartBlog on Twitter or me personally at David McCraney. And of course, you can go to the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page at slash You Are Not So Smart. You might want to check that out here in the next couple days because we're going to put up the link for the live show in New York City on May 15th. The tickets go on sale on March 12th. Check social media for more details. This music you're hearing right now, that's Mogwai. Earlier in the show, you heard Incompetech. And at the beginning, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. 
If you would like to support this show, you can do that directly through Patreon. Patreon.com slash you're not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get t-shirts and signed books and posters and all sorts of cool stuff. Check it out. Patreon.com slash you're not so smart. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.